The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Glad you're here because I recognize that I know that this is uh, Tuesday. Sometimes it's really nice. It's in the middle of the week and you feel like it's a good recharge, a good time to connect with people, get out of that kind of the the rut that we're in, but it's also it's also a difficult time. We're coming from busy weeks and busy schedules and and uh, studies and finals and everything. And so uh, I'm glad you're here. I, I just got to say one of the things that gives me a ton of joy uh, is that that when this place can somehow get connected in with what God is doing uh, throughout the wider church. And so it's been fun for me to even just hear about how you know that you, we have Max and Kyle who are going to be. I mean, by the way, it's, it'd be worthwhile going to the Copacabana. I think just to see Max and Kyle. Oh, now it's really getting good. You see, these guys get their groove on. It's going to be, well, it's fun. It's, there are people that have been able to come alongside. It's been great for me to actually walk along with Stu for the last couple of years. And, and uh, he showed up in the park a couple of years ago. And he totally was just a hippie with a big old drum on his back or something like that. And walking up, and I was like, who is this guy? But to see what's happened with Global Friends over the last couple of years has been just amazing as both he and Vivian, who are leading that ministry, have uh, really sought to reach out uh, to the, the strangers among us, the foreigners in our land, and be able to see them come uh, and meet Jesus uh, in a unique way. It's fun. It's great for me to see. It's great to be able to see uh, what God's done in Stu's life. So I love that this can be a place. For, I hope that this can be a place that can be a recharging station for you, in a sense, as we begin to think, what does it look like for us at this place, this time of life, to be able to, to, to kind of put faith into action? Not uh, leave it on the shelf, not just kind of go, well, it was good you know, for a time, and maybe it'll be good if I have kids someday. But no, right now, God is calling us to something big. He's calling us to engage our gifts. He's calling us to be his people, to be, turn this world upside down. It's part of why I love this whole series that we've been in. That for me, it's, it's given me a, 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 a fresh vision for what God wants to do among us. Uh, it's been this series. We look in this passage. It's Romans 12. It's a passage that I've, I've looked at uh, a lot through my life. And yet I've missed a lot, unfortunately. Scriptures like that. You can read it again and again. You pick up uh, something new. Uh, so let me just read, I'm gonna read uh, tonight I'm just going to read through this because we've been sitting in this passage and then review and we're going to head into actually a new section tonight. But before I do that, let's just, uh, uh, let me just read through and you can read through or, or follow along uh, if you want uh, in your Bibles. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's word. Yeah, join it. Come on. This is more fun. All together. Seriously. To offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the other. We have different gifts according to the grace given us, If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Just a quick review for some of us that maybe are just joining tonight. By the way, if you just made your way uh, out here tonight, uh, please come up and say hi. Um, I'm really thankful. Anytime anybody walks into a new room, I never want to forget. I never want us to forget as a community that it's a big deal to step into a new place that we might find familiar, but at one point we thought this was the scariest room in the world and it becomes home. But walking into a new place is is a big deal. It's a big risk, and so I'm thankful that you're here. Um, But here's where we've been. Uh, ten weeks, 
Okay, these eight verses, three big challenges, I think, come out of, out of uh, this passage. Uh, first, is that for us to live in view of God's mercy means that we begin to, to see our faith as something uh, that is holistic, that engages all of us. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not just what happens within a building. No, we're actually called to, to be living sacrifices, to, to lay down our entire life to God and say, God, do with it as you please. The, uh, Dave, his challenge uh, uh, to us was to, to think about not just coming to church, but to take church out into the world. We can only do that though, when we have a view of mercy, when we have a clear view of what God has done on our behalf, that, that, that it allows us to, to move forward with a sense of joy and confidence. So the first challenge is lay it down, to lay your life down, to, to let everything that you do be to the glory of God because He has absolutely come in and, and said, you are worth it. I see everything that you are. I see the glorious side of you and I see the stuff that is just flat broke and, I, and I'm calling to you. I'm, I'm urging you. This is Paul. He says, I urge you. I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Because God is saying, look, I want something so much more for you, but it means that you've got to trust me. Don't, don't play these games about who's better. Neither. Nobody is, nobody is better. Nobody can stand before me. But, and the only way that you can live in the best of who I've created you to be is, is, to, is to lay it down. Well, then the, the challenge that comes out of that is to belong to more than me. That uh, In a world and, a, and in a culture that uh, prizes individualism, prizes being able to do whatever I want, there is something, there's a huge challenge for us to begin to say, to lay that down, to somehow belong to more than my own needs, goals, dreams, wishes. That there is a freedom that actually comes comes to us. Not necessarily the freedom to do everything we want to, which honestly, (laughs) take you in pretty bad places sometimes. No, it's a freedom to grow into the person that God has called you to be. There's a sense that some of you might know what, you know, you've seen parents, you've seen, when you've seen happy marriages, marriages are not always happy. But if you were to see a happy marriage, you know that there's something that you give up your freedom within the context of a, of a marriage, but somehow you gain something. You know, when you, you have friends, friends, you know, they pull on you. They, they ask you to do things uh, sometimes you don't want to do. They can be an inconvenience, and yet there's somehow, when you belong to something more than yourself, you actually are freed to grow in to who you are created to be. Uh, George, a senior pastor, was here last week, and, and he was sharing about this, that we need to think about belonging to this body. That's the only way that, that I can truly grow, that I can truly experience all that God has for me. And he began to say that he, one of the things that he was recollecting was, I just came to this point where, you know what, gosh, I can't, you know, I can't do this on my own. I need others. Well, as we move into this final section, we're going to look at each of these gifts. Paul's going to, he's going to go and he's going to start talking about all, all these gifts. And what I want you guys to hear is that there's more to this than just, I need people for me. Which in some ways still gets a little bit self-consumed. Here's the thing. They need you. We need you. The church needs you. It's not just a matter of you need people. It's a, it's a matter of there are people out there that need you. That if you, aren't, if you don't show up, if you don't engage what you got, what God has given you, there's going to be a huge vacuum. There's going to be a huge hole. This is a passage that uh, it draws a little bit off of a, a passage in 1 Corinthians. And, and Paul, again and again, he talks about this idea of church, not as a building, which is interesting. Now, that's a big shift, by the way, because the, the temple was that place of God's presence. That was, that was the paradigm. The temple is where the presence of God is. Now, it didn't, it wasn't, didn't contain it. God wasn't like trapped in there hoping that he'd get visitors every now and then, right? I hope they show up this week. But that was the place where you met God. Well, now that there's a radical shift, and that now the very presence of God resides in His people, who are now being built to be a, a place, a sanctuary, and now we take the presence of God every, everywhere we go. 
Well, this idea of a body is interesting, and what Paul because what Paul talks about is, is in Corinthians there there's a there's a problem because people are beginning to to get stuck in this idea of how can I somehow prove that I'm a little bit better than everybody else, and and it's the same problem that we have today that there are certain kinds of gifts. Certain kinds of experiences that seem to be more valuable than other experiences. And so there was this kind of race to the top. And Paul's going, you don't understand. He tries to paint this picture. He goes, if this, if we are a body, and I want you to think about a body, we're, we're freakish looking. I mean, you think you could be an eye and be disconnected from the body? It's impossible. There's a sense of unity that has to come together. There's many parts that make up the one. You, you can't have an ear, say, to a foot. Eh, I don't really need you. Thanks. I can hear, I can hear just fine. You can't have a foot, you know, say to a head. Nah, I don't really need you. You actually make me walk in, in really stupid places. I'm tired of it, right? It doesn't work that way. It's freakish. And yet sometimes within the church, what we do is we end up having um, a body that is lame. That sort of limps along, that, that that is that is missing these key pieces or these pieces that are that are undervalued. This is where this what we're going to talk about tonight. These gifts, these are gifts that are in some ways, except for what we're talking about tonight on prophesy on prophesying or prophecy. They're very normal gifts, right? Service, teaching, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, um, giving. Leadership, mercy. There's nothing spectacular about them. They're different than some of the other uh, lists of gifts that we see. Things like tongues or healing or um, a number of other things that that feel a lot more uh, abnormal to our daily experience. But they're not any less in need of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if all these gifts are going to work together, it's going to take the Holy Spirit pulling us together. Uh, drawing us together, uh, uh, guiding us away from the ways that we split apart, guiding us from, from being fraction, fractionist in, in, in fighting over who's most important. It's going to take the Holy Spirit and a view of mercy for us to be able to all come together. For us to be able to say, I am who I am. And so as we talked about sober judgment a while ago, that, that, that sober judgment really is a sense of, I don't have to be everything, but I'm a part of something bigger. And I can finally uh, admit that. I can finally admit that I don't have to be everything. I'm just not. And sometimes for some of us, I hope it's a word of freedom because I I don't have to be what my parents think I need to be or what uh, culture and and people around me say I need to be. I could just be who God made me to be. I, I suck at some things. But man, I'm really great at other things. As we begin to have a sober view, we're able to let go of those things that we think we have to and embrace the thing that God has truly given us. Well, we got prophecy tonight. Prophecy is a little different, right? Prophecies, uh, we don't talk about prophecy a lot. So if we're going to talk about prophecy, let me just ask, what are the conceptions? As we're having a conversation, what's out there? As we talk about something like prophets, prophecy, what, what do people think about it? What's the impression? What are the examples that we see in culture? Crystal ball. Crystal ball. What else? Prophecy. When you think prophecy, what, what's, what are people thinking in the room? Bravely speaking truth. Bravely speaking truth. What? <laughs> awesome. What else? Okay, certain characters we see. Angry, angry, some angry person yelling at the street. Nostradamus, right? I mean, I don't know what the National Enquirer would print if they didn't have Nostradamus, right? To draw, I mean, dang, it's like when things get slow. Well, pull out Nostradamus. <laughs> Nothing freaky happened this week. Crazy What's that? Crazy ascetics. Crazy ascetics, yep. There's a sense that when you start talking about prophets, you're talking about people who, uh, they're, they're, they're a little kooky, right? Dreams. dreams. Yeah, dreams. Sometimes it, we, these crazy images. Well, here's the deal, you guys. All this stuff, it's out there. And I think, I want to do something real specific tonight. I actually want to demystify prophecy for us. 
I want to demystify what a prophet is for us. Now, there are some aspects to prophecy that I'm not going to touch because we have to explore it at another time. But why I want to demystify it for us is that we end up feeling like it's something that is way out there instead of something that we perhaps could own. Perhaps some of you actually have this gift. It's, it's not a gift that, that is somehow kind of about a mystical experience only, that is far removed, that, that, that is about doom and gloom, that it's about a sandwich board and, and yelling that the end is near and all is going to fall apart. That's not prophecy. It could, it, maybe it could include that. It's really about God calling up and saying, Hey, are you listening? Well, here's the thing. Prophets were huge in, the, in uh, New Testament time. It, oracles is a, is a word that we would use for them. And, and prophets are, or oracles were, were places. You go to a place that was an oracle and it, it was kind of a, a moment where you meet with God. And then there was uh, sometimes a prophet that, or they would use other words for it that would then tell you what the answer is. And so people would come, right? They're, they're looking for clarity and they say, hey, uh, should we go to war or not? Should I um, build a colony or not? Should we, um, what do we do about this natural disaster? So they're, they're going in a time of chaos. They're going, they're trying to get answers. Kings would often come and say, okay, what's the next move? I have no idea, right? Usually it's some sort of chaotic, high pressure moment. I want to go. I want a sense of clarity. I don't know what the way forward is. Sometimes people go, hey, should I marry or not? I don't really know, right? So they're, they're showing it. Do I take a loan or not? That people would go to oracles or, or look to prophets all the time for some sense of direction. Well, we don't have that now, but, but man, we still are fixated with the same kind of thing. Right? Think about this. Here's two contemporary voices that I would say act as prophets. If you think of us going to places, looking for someone to help bring some clarity, to help us see clearly uh, uh, what to do, to, to call out uh, what is true in front of us when it feels like all is confusing. Right, here are two polar opposites, John Stewart, Jerry Seinfeld. Think about comedians. Comedians, what they're so great at is to, is to take the things that seem so common but really are ridiculous. Right? And certainly depending on your point of view, you're either laughing along with John Stewart or, or you're getting really mad at him. Right? But so much of what he does is he's pulling stuff and he's saying, just look at how ridiculous this is. Look at the hypocrisy. Look at the double standard. Listen, you know, once you get them away from the microphone, did you think about what they just said, right? On the other side of it is we have people like Glenn Beck and others who, who get up and they, what they're trying to do is say, hey, let me tell you about the way things are. Let me tie the pieces together. Do you see what's going on, right? They'll talk about that a lot. Do you see what's going on? You're being fooled. And so they're trying to, trying to draw the cover up. We're fascinated by these characters. There's power in that. But the thing I want us to be able to hear tonight is I want prophecy to become a very ordinary thing. A prophet, a very ordinary person. So I'm going to be pushing a little bit in one direction. And if if I'm bumming you out for some of you who are into prophecy, get over it. You'll be all right. Because what I want us to hear is that, that some of us in here need to hear the call to be a prophet. We all as a people need individually to, to figure out what does it look like for, for me to engage the prophetic. As we looked at those, those verses, um, all these things, giving, encouraging, mercy, there's a, there really is a sense in which, yes, we're all called to these things, but some of us are, are, are fired. Some of us just feel naturally built for that. And while we might feel naturally built for it, we need the Holy Spirit to, to guide us. Well, lastly... It, Listen for this. What does it look like for us as a community to be prophetic? When we're prophetic and when we can hear, there's a sense of clarity that pushes us forward. That in all of these things, I'm going to be asking a couple of, uh, I'm going to be asking questions and the different speakers that are going to come in here are going to ask questions. What does it look like for this gift to belong to the other gifts? What does it look like for these gifts to be restrained or even sometimes maybe filled out by the other gifts? What does it look like for us to be able to figure out how is it that we as a church need this? And I think prophets in particular, ooh, somebody just put a little juju on the computer, I guess. Here's the deal. Prophets need to be, uh, we need prophets because prophets help us focus on where we're going to go as a people, 
and as a community. A couple of questions, though, I want us to ask. Whoa. A couple of questions, though, um, for us is I want us to think about grounding. I want us to think about where's the motivation that comes out that, that drives prophecy, but also what is the, where are the ways in which we need to be guided? And we're going to use three stories. Uh, stories, uh, I hope, are a lot better than just talking in abstract. Three stories. I'm going to look at Samuel. And you guys, I would encourage you guys to look at these later. I'm going to have to skim through these a little bit uh, tonight. But we're going to look at Samuel uh, in 1 Samuel 15. We're going to look at John the Baptist in Luke 3, and we're going to look at then the Apostle John in Revelation. We'll save the the best for last. Let me pray for us before we get in. Lord, I pray that we would be able to hear the word that you have for us tonight. That as we ask, Lord, what are you doing? We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that we would be able to see. That we would know the way forward. as your sons and daughters, individually, but also as a community. Um, open our eyes, Lord. We thank you for the scripture that, that is thousands of years old, and yet um, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we ask, um, uh, guides us tonight. Precious in your name. Amen. Well, First Samuel 15. First Samuel 15, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. I, I'm not going to have it up on the screen tonight, but I want you to, to be thinking about some of these things. What's the source? What's the, the needed guidance as we look through these? So Samuel is a prophet. Okay? Uh, and I, I want to start with Samuel because he's a very, very normal prophet, right? It's not too freaky, not too weird, no crazy visions. Okay? Uh, Samuel, is, uh, he was a part of the, uh, the house of God. He was a priest. Um, he was uh, called, he had a particular, God spoke to him early on that was, that was very evident um, when uh, actually the, the head priest above him, had, God had been real silent for a while. He, there was a sense of total disconnection from what God was doing. In fact, when, when there was a woman that came to pray and pour her heart out uh, before God, he accused her of being drunk. You know, it's like, dude, seriously? You actually see someone praying with a little bit of emotion you think they're drunk. It shows how, what a good priest he was. Anyways. <laughs> Samuel grows up, and he's, he's in his house, and he grows into a place of prominence. And, and the people of Israel come, and they say, look, I know God is supposed to be our king. I know we're supposed to take our direction from him, but we don't want that. We want someone who's going to tell us what to do. We want someone who's going to make all our decisions for us, because it's just too hard to make them on our own and to, and to have to listen to God. So somebody else do that for us, and we want someone to fight our battles for us. We want to be like everybody else. Samuel goes, you, you don't. Trust me, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's back and forth. Finally says, finally says, okay, fine. And, and, and God consoles him a little bit because he says, look, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so Samuel goes and he, he uh, calls out somebody who looks really impressive. Saul. He's huge. In, in a time uh, when, you know, he, he was ahead, ahead above everybody else. He, he was a big guy. He looked like a king. He, he looked impressive. And yet, he had a rocky start, Saul did. He, he got, Samuel came to him and said, you're going to be king. And he, he laid hands on him and he called him. And, and, and when it was time to blow the trumpets and announce the king, you know, where's Saul? I'm looking for him. And Saul's actually hiding over in the luggage, right? A little bit rough. You can imagine the people going, what? Seriously? Right? He's back there with the donkeys and the luggage. Then they have to yank him out, right? So he has a, he has a rough start, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's scared. He's, he looks big, but, but inside he knows, ah, oh, gosh, I don't have no idea even what I'm doing. Well, Saul gets a little bit of, he, he gets a little bit of traction. He, he gets some success. God begins to grant, God begins to grant him some success. And it's, but it's rocky. It's rocky. Well, then there's this moment when, um, instructions come. And this is a hard passage, and I'm not going to have time to, to go into some of the difficulties on it. I just want to acknowledge it's, it's a hard passage because uh, Saul gets instructions from Samuel to, to, to wipe out a group called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had, had taken advantage of Israel when they were at their lowest, most vulnerable place. They'd gone in and, and uh, tried to wipe them out, tried to attack them at the most vulnerable place. And so uh, there's a sense of, of judgment that's coming and, and Saul is supposed to go out and wipe out the Amalekites and wipe everything, everything out. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. Now, I'm going to pick up in verse 7. 
So Saul receives the instructions, um, and then he goes out. We read it. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and his people, and he totally destroyed with the uh, and all of his people. He totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag the, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. They were willing. They were unwilling to destroy completely. Like the, these, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And so. Uh, he's about to get in trouble for this. We read that the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I'm grieved that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord that night. What I want us to hear briefly in there is that we feel like there's a sense of mercy and it seems like Saul's going to get in trouble here, but you can't feel bad for Saul. Because here's the thing, he, was asked, he had specific instructions, and it wasn't, this isn't an act of mercy. Everything that didn't look great and nice and that would enrich him, he, he had no problem slaughtering. But then all the best and the king, he kept. Well, the first thing I want to say about, about a prophet, and I love it, Samuel's a, a prophet, is, is that prophecy is not a, something primarily is about somebody way out there that gets this strange word by themselves and then com- jumps in, dumps it on us, and then leaves. The prophecy primarily is a very grounded thing. It's a very rooted thing that it comes out of relationship. It, it comes out of being in a context in which you know what is going on. You have eyes to see. In fact, what's so interesting about Samuel really is that he actually has credibility to even say anything to Saul. Because he, he, he's been there from the very beginning. Before He was a leader before Saul came along. And, and then he actually called Saul out. And then he instructed Saul early on. And he encouraged Saul. And, and he kept walking with Saul. And Saul, even when Saul kept failing again and again and again. So when this word comes to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. He's troubled. And he cried out to the Lord all night. See, if prophecy comes out of being in a context and being able to know somebody, it also then comes out of um, a burden and out of a grieving heart. It, it comes from this place of seeing somebody that you, that you love just blow it. it. It comes from this place of, 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 he's not just mad because Saul didn't obey. He, he's mad because he's just seeing Saul ugh, again bungle it. He'd seen Saul, he'd walked with Saul, and yet here, again, Saul has dropped the ball. Prophecy primarily, it, it can feel like sometimes it's a powerful thing, and it is a powerful thing, and, and, and people will follow you, and, and that's probably why there's, there's a lot of false prophets, because there's power in what you say, especially when you, and I want to I encourage all of us to be careful with how we attach God's name onto stuff. But you try to attach God's name onto stuff, and it's, and it's powerful. People like it. We can get up, and people can get mad with us, and we can stoke up anger. And yet, biblical prophecy, the prophecy that, that is one that, that, that helps us ground down and it, it is rooted, is one that is, is connected to reality, intimately connected to reality, so that, that we actually know what is going on. It, it's not that God told us so much. It's that, that we are, we're there so we can see what is happening in people's lives or, or, or in the life, or in the life of our, and culture of our company or, or in, the, in our school or in our family. It's not that God had to tell us that there's brokenness in our family. We can see it because we know the people. We love the people. It comes out of this, this deep sadness, this place of longing for more from a place, uh, uh, sometimes even a country, of our family, of ourselves. It comes out of this deep burden to, to, that longs for more. Some of you know what this is like, I'm guessing. At least I do. See, sometimes prophecy... Um, we talk about it as like a, that it's fortune telling that, that it's, it's just about it's a crystal ball 
that it's let me tell you what's going to happen in the future and that and, and everybody wants to know what happens in the future because you know as long as it's good otherwise we you know we want our money back right it's not it's the fortune telling here's why I want to demystify this a lot of times it, it's just being able to be somebody who sees what's going on who knows the heart of God and so can go you put A and B together and guess what it leads to C that sometimes the burden that is on our heart is when we see those that we love. When we know who God is, when we know the, the, this person that we're with, and we can just go, if you keep going on this track, it will end up here. And it's not because I have to, I got some special word. It's just logical. That a lot of times, sometimes what we're seeing, I think, in scripture is just, it, it, I want to demystify in the sense of like, how do they know that? Nobody could ever know that. No, it's just that they looked around, they paid attention, they put it together. And one of the things that is so hard is to watch sometimes people fulfill the very, in a sense, prophecy that you might say. It's like, I, this is what's going to happen if you go down there. And then you watch them and you can't do a thing about it. And they just fall flat on their face. It, man, it, tear, it, it, can t- it tears us up. I know some of you know what that's like as you've seen people that you love do that. I certainly have. See, prophets have people who, there's dual vision. They, they see the, the future, the possibility, the potential, the truth, and then they also see very clearly reality, the brokenness, the lies, the place that people are stuck. And, and so prophecy a lot of times comes out of a place of, of, um, of deep burden as you try to reconcile these things and, and try to wake people up uh, to the reality that you see. Let's continue on. Verses 12 to 24 as we continue on. So Samuel um, went to go meet Saul, and when he reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and, they, uh, and suddenly, do you hear what's going on, right? Hey, I carried out the Lord's instructions. I'm a champ, right? And then suddenly, it's the soldiers, it was the soldiers, you know, they bought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best um, of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. This is for the Lord. We did this for Jesus, right? We did this for the Lord. But, we don't, but don't worry, we totally destroyed all... The rest. Stop, said Samuel to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. You can imagine Saul's going, all right, tell me. He's like bracing himself because Samuel doesn't often have good news for him. Although you were once small in your own eyes, you did, not be, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go. Why did you not obey the Lord? And Saul goes, hey, listen, I did. I did the mission that the, the, that, that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And I brought back their king and the soldiers kept the sheep and the cattle. Again, we're going to do it. It's for God. It was for God. And he eventually goes on. And then Saul finally gets to this point where he finally gives up. And he goes, okay, look, I, uh, I know I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. If we begin to fill out this idea of prophecy, prophecy comes out of a burden, but it fundamentally is, is to help people face what is true. It, it, it's to move beyond the games that we play, the, the way that we pretend that, that everything is fine, the way we like to pretend and we like to look nice. It, it sees right through that and it goes, I, I long for more than you. I long for a sense of, of integrity. Saul, God called you to this. Did he not make you king? And yet here's the deal. You were hiding like a scared little schoolboy behind the, the luggage when I, when I called you. And yet, he's brought you to prominence. And now, after you have some sense of victory, you actually erected a statue in your own honor. A monument in your own honor. Are you kidding me? Come on. Live with a sense of integrity. The prophets, over and, again, over, and over again, throughout Scripture, really are just saying this. Look, you are playing a game, but it doesn't match up with your life. And here's what God cares about. He doesn't care that you're out there just doing the good Christian thing. He does not care. 
There's a refrain in here, and he says, "Listen, listen. Does not the Lord delight in, or does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the the fat of rams. Don't play games with God. See who you are. Live with a sense of integrity." So as we think about prophecy being in a context with people, coming from a burden, helping people see with a sense of integrity, here, here's what it could look like for some of you. But for some of us, it's coming along people that we know. And, and here's the thing. Samuel had credibility, so he could say some of this stuff to Saul and, and be heard. And it's coming and saying, look, you're awesome, but you're acting like an arrogant jerk. Come on. Pull it down. A little bit. Remember, God has been merciful to you. But it also looks like, like this, that sometimes it's coming alongside and saying, listen, you think that your life is destroyed, your wife has left you, your husband has left you, uh, sickness has come up, uh, upon your family, and you think that God has totally abandoned you and that you're worthless. But that's not true. Here's what's true. God has not left you. God is with you. God loves you. You're beautiful. You're valuable. The prophecy is, is trying to say, let's close this gap here on this disparity between what you are, what the reality right now and what is ultimately true. Whoever, who's heard of The Emperor Has No Clothes? Okay, the, the book, or The Emperor's New Clothes. Hans Christian Andersen was written a while ago. There's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of books that are like this. And essentially, you guys know, right? The, the story goes... Uh, uh, these merchants come into town. Um, they, they sell clothes. They're pretty smart. They're basically they're, they're, they're out there. They're sharks. And so they come in and they, they find this really pompous emperor. And they say, I'm going to make you the best clothes ever. These are the finest clothes, the finest silk. You won't even feel it. They're amazing. Here, here's the thing. Um, everybody will think that they're amazing. You'll, you'll look awesome. But if you're an idiot... If you kind of don't have, if you don't have any character, or if you're really, just, if you're just a moron, you won't be able to see them. Only smart people can see them, right? So they make these clothes, and pretty soon they're, they're, they go this elaborate act, and and it looks like you know everyone's thinking, are they making something? But just they're just up there, just you know, in the air, going around and around, and yet nobody around the emperor is willing to say anything, right? And then. He comes out, and in fact, the emperor is looking down, and, and he doesn't actually see anything that they're making. And then when they, they, they put the clothes on, he doesn't see anything, but he doesn't want to say. He doesn't want to look like an idiot, so he doesn't want to admit that he's, oh, I look great. So, right, he's up there, and then finally, and no, all of his friends, all of his officials around are going, oh, you look, those are amazing. You look, what color are they again? Yeah, you look, oh, that looks awesome, right? And then there's a little kid. How come the emperor doesn't have any clothes? Right? The one person that was willing to say what is true. Well, sometimes for us, it can feel like we're in these situations where it means that we might be the only person who calls out what is true. That, that, that sometimes to be a prophet is to, is to be lonely. To be the one person who, who says, look, everybody says something different, but it's just not true. Everybody is going along and pretending that, that, that this policy is okay or, or the way that we're treating people is okay or this product that we're, that we're making is okay, but, it, but it, it isn't. I mean, doesn't anybody else see this? There are these moments where we're, we're called to a sense of integrity where we're have to, we have to make a decision. Am I willing to stand? Stand up and, and, and to say what is true. And sometimes it just means that we act different. We look different. Sometimes it just it means that we're not even saying anything. It just means that we're not going along with everything that is going on around us in our communities or friends. Or, I mean, I've been in these situations where I feel like, why does it feel so hard where I'm at? I'm just not stealing. But everybody I work with decides that they can take whatever they want out of this case, pastry case. That they continually try to to take things that are not theirs because they're trying to get back. And so when I don't, when I actually pay for something the way I'm supposed to pay for it, suddenly it feels like I'm under a tremendous amount of pressure and I become the bad guy. For some of us, I, I know this is the context that we're in, for some of us, to not move in with the person you're dating, to not sleep with the person you're dating feels crazy. 
Because people go, well, you don't, what, you don't like her? What, you're not attracted to her? What, you're not attracted to him? What? That it feels crazy, and yet you're not even saying anything. You're not making any judgment call. You're just living according to something different, and yet that in and very itself can be a prophetic act. This moment where we begin to push uh, something else. We begin to live by a, a different reality. And here's the thing. It's, for some people, Paul will say it's the smell of death it, it, because our very being is going to threaten everything that they hold tightly onto. But for some people, it's going to lead the way. It's going to be an opportunity to say, I, there can be more for me. I, I can get out of this place. There's another reality that I didn't even know about. All right, second passage is Luke 3. This guy, John the Baptist, who is a, um, called the greatest prophet, and Jesus says so, so I'm not going to argue with him. So I thought we should look at him. But John the Baptist, uh, he's on the scene. And, and, and what's so interesting about John the Baptist is, it, in a sense, he, he tells us a couple things, mostly about humility. Luke 3, read that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he, he, uh, he's out in the desert and he is a little kooky. He's wearing, he's just eating honey and he's got weird clothes on. But people love him, right? He's coming out. People are flocking to him. I don't know why. And he yells at him. You know, I mean, he starts off. John saw the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. And he said, you brood of vipers, right? Welcome. You can start with welcome, John. Come on. You brood of vipers. Who told you to flee the coming wrath? But here's the thing, what, there's this passage out of Isaiah that's quoted. And it, it helps us understand what prophecy is. It says, a voice, of, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough roads made smooth. And all mankind will see the salvation of God. That prophecy really fundamentally is not about something that we can force any down, uh, we can force anybody to experience or we can force change, but it really is about just saying, I'm going to make, I'm going to point to the way of the Lord. I'm going to make, I'm going to make a path. I'm going to simply just, just begin to prepare. I'm just going to, in a time when nobody is pointing to the elephant in the room, I'm going to point to the elephant in the room. When you understand that, if, you, if prophecy goes wrong, it's because there, there needs to be a sense of humility. And John gets this. He, he gets that when the crowds come around him, eventually, uh, later on, they say, We're gonna, you're the one. We want to raise you up. Be our leader. John says, no, it's not me. Listen, I'm just preparing the way, but it's, another's going to come. Christ is going to come, and he's the one that does the work. And, and, and when we get in trouble, that for some of you that, who might feel like you have this, get, this burden, you see what is true, and you long for people to experience it, where we get off is when we think we have to own it. It, it wears us out. It devastates us because we think, uh, if I can't make something happen, then the, it, we take on ownership for the world. That's where prophecy goes wrong. And yet John says, look, it's not me. In fact, later on, he says, you know what? I, got, I gained some prominence. I got some popularity. And yet, I have to decrease so that, I, so that he may increase. He talks, talks about that in John. There's a sense of humility we see in John too, because at some point, he's stuck in jail. And he, he pointed to Jesus and he said, that's the one. He's the coming Messiah. And yet, he, he, Jesus isn't doing what he wants. Jesus isn't really as mean as John would like him to be, right? John kind of wants him to come in and just kick butt and take names. And Jesus is like healing people. And so he's like, come on, are you the one? I'm not really sure. Because I'm in jail for this. And I want to know if I, if, I, if I was right. There's a sense that... We can speak with conviction, but we have to begin to say, I don't ultimately know the way it's going to turn out. I just point. I just try to point to truth and to the reality of God. And eventually, I have to be able, I have to, be able to give it and say, ultimately, the transformation that's needed is Christ and what God is going to do in their life. Uh, it's time for me to back off. I've played my role. I've played my part. We need the other gifts. We need encouragement and leadership that, that I, can get, I can give vision. I can point the direction. But unless we have the rest of the gifts, it's just going to be a lot of talk. I have to be able to step back. say, And even at times say, you know, perhaps, perhaps I didn't know the way it was all going to turn out. As he thought. 
Well, prophecy, I think, is this. And let's get a definition of it. I wanted to lay some groundwork before we got into it. Prophecy, I think, fundamentally is giving witness to the truth about God and our world and then inviting people to wake up and live accordingly. It's fundamentally about giving witness only to the truth about God in our world and then invite people to wake up and live accordingly. It's funny, people come out and they hear John, they go, okay, well, what should we do? And it's really obvious. You know, John's kind of bringing this, this, this word of judgment and he's like, well, uh, if you're stealing, don't steal, right? It, you know, if, if you're a soldier, don't extort money, right? It's just this really basic stuff. And, but again, it's this whole sense of a call to integrity that John is calling. It's a call to integrity, well, last is Revelation. Now, John, the Apostle John, he gets locked up. Okay, Rome is on the rise. Um, Christians are beginning to get blamed for all kinds of stuff. Uh, that they're easy scapegoats. Um, they're a threat in some ways to to the to the Pax Romana, Pax Romana the peace of Rome. Um, they don't play according to the rules. Uh, they visit. Uh, sick people that you're supposed to cast aside. It makes everybody feel guilty, right? So Christians are not popular. In fact, it, it gets to the point where Christians are, are become torches for garden parties for the emperors. That, that When Nero, later on, will get in trouble, uh, he, he starts a fire in Rome, and, and everyone wants to blame the emperor, but then he, basically, he just turns everything, and he makes Christians the scapegoats. John, at this point, is locked up, and he's, he's on a, the island of Patmos, and he's a prisoner. And, and it's here that he has a vision. And it's the vision that a lot of us, you know, for some of us, when we've heard about Revelation, we just don't even know what to do with it. It sounds crazy. There's beasts. There's dragons. There's the great whore of Babylon. I mean, uh, it goes on and on and on. We don't, know what to, we don't know what to do with it, right? I love how we normally just preach in the first three chapters and go, okay, Revelation. Anyways... We don't know what to do with it. Well, part of what's going on is that, that John is he's writing to encourage the churches that are out there. And he has to pass his letters through, um, through Roman guards, right? They're going to read his letters. They're going to read what he wrote. So he probably better not be super explicit about how bad Rome is, right? So he's used imagery, imagery that is um, uh, rooted throughout Scripture and other places. But here's fundamentally what he's doing. He's saying, look, churches, you're looking out and you're, you see Rome as just dominant. Man, the images are overtake, or overwhelming and over, uh, overwhelming. You see their military power. You see their economic power and, and the, the way that they're pillaging from, from all, the whole world. That, that you see the, the, the cult of the emperor. That everybody has to bow down to the emperor and call him divine. And it's hard to know how to stand in the midst of this. And so John is fundamentally, my conviction with Revelation is fundamentally not trying to predict the future, but to tell people how to remain faithful in the moment. But he uses, sometimes what we need is a prophetic imagination to be able to see things for what they really are. And so... What John wants to paint is, is, is the great powers that are dominating, that, that, the forming forces that people are feeling. He wants to say, look, they're actually beastly. They don't make you more human. They don't, lead to, they don't lead to the flourishing of life. They actually lead to dehumanizing people. And I want you to see something different. So in 4 and 5, he says, listen, at the, at the center of everything is not Rome. It's not the emperor, it's not the military, it's not this huge economic engine. At the center of everything is a very different picture. It's a lion who has won the day, but has won the day because he was a slain lamb. And so you have this mix of imagery. It's a lion who didn't come and wipe us out. It's a lion who came and gave his life for us, sacrificed himself for us set us free, that at the center of the universe is the worship of that Lamb. And so I want you to hang on. Hang on. See the world for what it is. Don't go along with what, everything, that's, everything that you see out there. Be faithful. Remain strong. Stay true to what, who has called you. And so really, for us, the prophetic includes the imagination, and so for many of us, I think sometimes it's for us, you know, it's calling things out in a boardroom and it's saying, look, we can dance around things, but we're basically making decisions out of fear 
and anger. Um, that, that it's being able to say, look, the way we're going, this is just about pride and hubris. Uh, the, way, the way we're going, this is, a, this is not bringing any benefit to society. This is just simply taking from society. For some of us, it might look like art or pictures or songs in which we begin to image what is really going on in the world. How can we help people see? How can we help people see the ugliness that we like to call beauty? But then how also can we point out the beauty that we overlook and cast aside as worthless? God has called us to be prophets. Some of us in particular to be part of a community, to stay rooted in a community, even if a community doesn't always hear us. We're called to be prophetic in how we point to a different reality. We're called to be prophetic as, as a people, to point to the mercy of God as a thing that is true, ultimately, and call people to be able to deal with that. In Revelation, the last church that he talks to is Laodicea. And there's a word for a number of churches throughout Asia Minor. And so this is the word. And perhaps it's, perhaps it's a prophetic word for us tonight. As John is writing, he writes down this from the mouth of Jesus. I know your deeds. He's writing as if it is Christ writing to them. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were eat. You're either one or the other because you're lukewarm, not hot nor cold. And you're not healing because you're hot water. You're not refreshing because you're cold water. I'm not going to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful and poor, blind and naked. Buy from me what matters. Buy from me gold refined with fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, those whom I rebuke, uh, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him, whoever comes. Um, there's a promise in there. The promise, I think, for us tonight is if we are going to even remotely begin to live into the prophetic call that God has called on all of us, and for some of us in particular, there's business that needs to be done. It's business in which we're, we have to decide whether for the first time or maybe for uh, after a long, long time of, of... He's talking about Christians in Laodicea, but Christians who have bought into the lie that they're rich and yet... They look good on the exterior, but underneath they feel wretched. And for maybe for some of us, we feel that. If only people knew what was going on inside of me. The, the facade that I'm putting up with. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Just come in. Sit with me. Eat with me. It's, it's a call to us for the first time. But primarily, it's a call for us to actually live this thing out. To come in and to say, I lay before you everything. That is not true. Open my eyes. Help me to live with integrity. Help me essentially to receive your mercy. And so to live with power. So I invite us to pray. And to ask that question. And perhaps for all of us, wherever we're at. To think, what do we, what's our response? Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. I'm longing to come in and to give you what matters, to give you what is eternal, to sit with you, to empower you. Let go of fear. Let go of the stuff that you're trying to, you're trying to impress me with, that you're trying to impress the world with. Let go of the stuff that you think is so important that, that you're useless and you know it. You can feel it. People around you think that you're successful, but you know deep down inside you're rotting away. Let me fire your imagination. So Lord, hear our prayer.